For those of you who were uh, here at East Chestnut Street last Sunday, you can relate to my sense that Jason Cooneyholm, as a guest speaker, is a very tough act to follow. <laughs> I would not normally put in a plug for listening to a prior week's sermon, but I'll make an exception in this case. If you weren't here last Sunday, find the sermon on the internet or get the CD from the back in the mailbox area. In a nutshell, Bishop Cooneyholm introduced us to what I consider to be an extremely helpful and thought-provoking theology of interruption. He reminded us that some of Jesus' most important work and teachable moments arose from accidents and sometimes rude interruptions in his busy schedule. Jason's tie-in was that we as a church body have also gone through several interruptions over the past three years or so. We lost two pastors in quick succession in the not-too-distant past, and we're now going through the process of dealing with the loss of an effective and beloved interim pastor who wisely and skillfully led us through this two-year transition time. We are on our own again, if only for a matter of a few months. It is perhaps a time of reflection, a time of looking back, of looking ahead, uh, maybe looking inwardly a little bit. Who do we want to be as a congregation? How will we integrate new leadership into our way of doing things? Part of the reason I believe it's important for you to hear what Jason had to say last week is that in some ways I'd like to think that I am building on the theme that he laid out. For approximately the next two months, we are on our own, as I said, in terms of traditional full-time pastoral leadership. We are in the midst of yet another interruption. We are a bit like a person about to be married. We are still single, but the wedding date is set. Who are we and what will we bring to this relationship with our new pastor and his family? As Todd gets to know us, what do we want him to see? What bad habits have we developed that we would like to shake off before he gets to see them and has to remind us that they are still there? What good habits do we want to hone further so that we can be more effective in carrying out the goals of the church's purpose statement? One of the goals for the Stewardship Commission is to conduct at least one Sunday service a year with a stewardship theme. You'll probably notice that there are a lot of Stewardship Commission members participating in the service. A nice byproduct of this little exercise for our commission is that come fall, we'll get to look over our goal statement and have the satisfaction of being able to report to the board that we did, indeed, accomplish this particular goal. Check. I'd like to let you know how much I have enjoyed my role as leadership in the Stewardship Commission for the past four years or so. I'm deeply honored and humbled that you've invited me to assume this role and that uh, seem to be okay with me taking on a, another term. You have been patient with me as I've made mistakes while ascending the learning curve. I have to admit that when I was first approached about taking on leadership in church finances and stewardship, I was not very excited about it. Part of my hesitation was simply a sense of not wanting to carry the duties and responsibilities of my day job into my work for the church. For those of you that don't know, I spend my days fighting with financial numbers. Sometimes the numbers I fight with are on good behavior, 
Sometimes they are rebellious and completely out of control. When I am not fighting with numbers at work, I'm often fighting with other people who are fighting with the numbers that they're in charge of. Like my numbers, those people's numbers are also often very uncooperative and unreasonable, and the whole thing can be pretty upsetting. There can be a lot of weariness in all of those number battles, and the thought of coming home and facing yet another whole army of numbers in the church accounting records did not seem very appealing to me. I was also hesitant to take on a position like church treasurer or chief money guy because of some unpleasant memories from my youth experience in church. In particular, I wanted to avoid at all costs any repeat of what I knew during my teenage years as White Buck Sunday. You may ask, pray tell, <laughs> what is White Buck Sunday? Thereon hangs a tale. In the church of my youth, the church fiscal year followed the school year. September 1 was the beginning of a new budget and fiscal year. Many years around midsummer, the alarms would begin to sound. The amount of money projected to be received by the end of the fiscal year was, to put it politely, less than the amount hoped for. This would have been around the late 70s or early 80s, long before speakers had access to PowerPoint or fancy graphics. However, I do remember there being charts, handouts, and per week giving calculations that I did not understand or care about. White Buck Sunday took place around three weeks before the end of the fiscal year, when a sizable portion of the Sunday morning worship service was devoted to discussing the upcoming shortfall. I can remember one year in which the entire service was dedicated to the discussion. In those days, successful and fashionable businessmen of a certain age had an alarming tendency to wear white buck shoes. <laughs> Those were the men who led the discussion and the accompanying effort to cajole whatever additional dollars the congregation that they could muster so as to avert what seemed in my teenage mind to be some sort of fiscal catastrophe. There were different men during different years who led the discussion. However, the white buck shoes seemed to be a constant element year after year. Unfortunately for me in my formative years, this was also the era of the money-begging TV preachers. As a youth, it all left me with a distaste for anything that juxtaposed congregational life with the messy world of money and finances. I resolved at that time that in regards to church life, money was, at best, a necessary evil. At worst, it was the fuel for the world of fast-talking con men and the trusting and faithful contributors that they exploited. As an impressionable teenager at that time, I also resolved at that point that I personally would not have any interest in a career that dealt with money or finances. <laughs> I held out hope that I could follow a more noble career calling than being some kind of money guy. We all make our compromises. <laughs> For the record, I have an excellent ongoing relationship with the church I attended as a child. In many ways, it's very similar to our congregation. It's a growing, vibrant church full of faithful people with good ideas about building God's kingdom. 
I don't believe that White Buck Sunday happens anymore. If it does, I'm certain that it's toned down. The budget shortfall reminders, if they are any, are likely tucked away into a monthly newsletter. There may be an announcement during sharing time that, if possible, in the next few weeks, it would be good if you could contribute just a little bit more so that we don't have a budget shortfall by the end of the fiscal year. So I use this story to illustrate the dance that faithful congregations have with money. I also use it to illustrate that our congregation is an outlier when it comes to finances. Or I should say, at least it's an outlier during the three or four years that I've been sort of in charge of the money stuff. I mentioned earlier that I was not especially keen on taking on this role when I was first offered it. Along with the number battles, I saw myself of necessity having to be the white buck shoe guy. I do not relish making congregational announcements late in the year using my best Jim Haverstick voice <laughs> that we are facing a potential operating budget shortfall as of the end of the year. This would, of course, be followed by the plea to dig a little deeper during December to avoid an operating deficit for the calendar year. In my work in volunteer roles, I have come into contact with several church treasurers. The conversations eventually shift to the realities of budgets, of expenses, and revenue. And I can report that many churches, for a variety of very good reasons, have a very difficult time meeting their financial obligations. I always feel a bit awkward in those conversations when I'm asked about my experience. I am honest. I relate honestly and truthfully that for at least the last three years, East Chestnut Street giving for both internal and external projects has exceeded the budget goals we have set. To put it in very stark terms, at the end of the year, we have more money than what we know what to do with. Normally, the conversation with the church treasurer goes into awkward silence mode. My fellow church treasurer will look at me silent for a while, as if he or she is waiting for the punchline of a joke I am telling. When it's obvious that I am being serious, the awkwardness still remains. Suggestions are then forthcoming. Well, why don't you pay down some of the principal on your church's long-term debt? Well, I relate truthfully that there is no long-term debt, and there has not been a mortgage on the original church building since a long, long time before I was born. There have been no mortgages on other church properties either, at least as far back as when we started attending here in 1996. In most conversations as it goes along, I detect a bit of envy from the, my fellow church money person. Somewhere later in the conversation, I normally hear the same joke delivered with a wry smile. Well, have you considered just making blanket donations to other churches? <laughs> as a way to give your money something worthwhile to do. I get the impression that he or she would be more than happy to discuss such an arrangement. Well, it's a beautiful summer day. Uh, flowers before us are, are lovely. The financial news is good. As long as your giving remains strong, don't let me back away from that. It'd be tempting for me to stop talking, sit down, and join you in basking in the glow of our congregation's wise use of resources, to which I have to say, unfortunately, not so fast. Scripture has some lessons for wise middle-class folk like us, and the lessons are not always very pretty. Let's look at the Matthew passage. 
In recent years, I've become deeply troubled by this passage. I read it through a 21st century lens. Here are three servants who are called to be stewards over specific portions of their master's wealth. One servant received a major fortune. Another received a small fortune. A third received what is still a very sizable sum of money. The passage makes clear that the servants' differing ability levels were a factor in how much they received. And we all know the story. Servant A and Servant B both doubled the money for their master. Perhaps they got in the, on the ground floor of the first century equivalent of a, of a hot initial public offering. Servant C, driven by righteous fear of the master, chooses the safe route. He did nothing. Notice that he did not waste the money. He did not spend it unwisely. He kept it safe in anticipation of his master's return. One could make the case, and I think a fairly strong case, that he was the wise servant, wiser even than servant A or B, because he did not expose his master's wealth to the uncertainties of the marketplace. What would the master have said to servant A if that servant reported to his master that he invested in Las Vegas real estate, made a killing on paper for a short while, and then lost the full five talents when Clark County, Nevada property values plummeted. Instead of giving his master double what was entrusted to him, the servant instead, in my hypothetical scenario, presented him with a mortgage certificate showing that the master owed a real estate developer 10 talents in debt, secured by the master's other property that the servant had to mortgage to get the loan to buy the Las Vegas real estate. I don't think that the scene would be very pretty. I guess the troubling issue for me in this, in this scenario, in this story, or this periscope, is how harshly servant C is treated. In our world, the golden rule is firmly in force. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Or as a Murphy's Law poster I once owned stated so well, in order to secure a loan, you must first prove that you don't need it. The five talent and two talent servants started out with huge advantages that the one talent servant did not have. Isn't that the way our money system works? Those who have the money have the better tools to make more of it. Those with less money are vulnerable to the exploitation by the five talent or t and two talent people who can use their power and influence to extract the limited wealth held by the one talent or one dollar or one euro or one rupee people. In the story, as in life, what little bit the servant did have was taken away from him and given to someone who did not need it. Upon further reflection and, and diving into this passage a little bit more recently, I believe I'm a victim of understanding the passage erroneously because I'm reading it as a 21st century economic progressive who faithfully reads the editorial pages of the New York Times. The point of the story is not about economic exploitation. The point is that the third servant, in a genuine attempt to be faithful and wise with what was entrusted to him, did nothing other, and I think this is the key, he did nothing other than that which was expected of him based on the circumstances. Let's put servant A and servant B out of our minds. They've served their purpose in the story. They're just sort of foils upon which um, we can look a little bit more at servant C. 
Servant C is obviously the focal point of the story. His master knew that he was the less smart servant of the three, and the amount given him reflected that limitation. As in many of Jesus' parables, there is exaggeration that drives home a point. No one with any sense of justice could point to servant C and say that he is worthless. The master's reaction is clearly over the top. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is clear. Just doing what is expected as thrifty, prudent, or wise is not good enough for the citizens of God's kingdom. Faithful stewardship, according to this passage, assumes taking on risks that may seem unwise. It assumes the occasional failures when good ideas turn into failed projects. It assumes that some money will be lost because some investments in new initiatives will not return anything of any value. The short conclusion that I draw is that all of us, as individuals and as a church, are servant C. Our master gives to us some resources according to our abilities. The resources include training, talents, and yes, money that we've set aside for church use. We are not inherently the smarter servants A or B because we have no idea what direction the Holy Spirit will take us or what path we will be compelled to follow. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Psalms 49, which was read this morning, is anything but uplifting as the psalmist reflects on who we are as humans. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the harp. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of my persecutors surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no ransom avails for one's life. There is no price one can give God for it. When we look at the wise, they die. Foolish and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their home forever. Clearly, this is not an uplifting psalm that helps us celebrate a, a, a sunny summer morning. But I like it because it illustrates a truth about who we are and what we have. It's an echo of the famous and familiar passage from the funeral service from the Book of Common Prayer. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In other words, you can't take it with you. We don't know what tomorrow will bring or when the master is going to return and force us to give an account for the ways in which we've used our resources. But we can take away from this passage in, Mass in Matthew an important lesson, and that is simply the status quo is not acceptable. It is not enough simply to return to the giver the same measure of resources what we received to begin with. The stewardship bar is higher than that. To me, the clear takeaway from this passage is that risky ventures carefully planned out to bring the greatest possibility of success are assumed to be fundamental activities of kingdom citizens. So what does this have to do with church finances? Well, I think the lesson is fairly clear. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Let me illustrate from personal experience. 
At the end of my first year as the church accountant, I was very happy to report that the church income exceeded expenses. Ditto for year two. By this past year, year three, I began to have a nagging unease about that. I realize there are good reasons why we have maintained an operating surplus. And I am also aware, I'm very aware, trust me, that personnel costs, which are a huge driver of overall operating expenses, may increase significantly in the next few years. All of that is noted. But the uneasy feeling that we are missing opportunities to live out the goals of congregational mission statement stays with me, and I humbly pass them on to you for consideration. When I talk to people in the congregation about my concern, one theme that keeps coming up, and it's a, it's a good rejoinder, is a bit of a reality check. I receive helpful reminders that we are still going what, through what I call the great interruption. I sense that people are tired and perhaps will, less willing to think big thoughts or dream big visions than they would be if they were served by a permanent full-time pastor. My initial response to that is one of understanding and agreement. However, my secondary response is one that I will pass on to you, and it's two words, two months. As Todd integrates himself into church life, lingering reservations about whether there is energy among us to dream big dreams and invest the ample time, talent, and financial resources we have going, it's going to start wearing a little thin. And I'd also throw out the challenge that like an engaged partner waiting for the wedding day, should we start right now to behave in the ways that we think we should be as of the join-up day, when we're again served by a full-time pastor? So we as a congregation are clearly generous and careful in our giving. The, challenging, the challenge I want to leave is that we should be equally careful and generous in our spending. And I am the first to acknowledge that spending money well in a, church content, in a church context is probably as hard, if not harder, than earning it. There are any number of pitfalls and bad ideas to fall into where there is no real return on our investment. And I'm all about return on investment. Community initiatives might fall flat. Money spent on some form of congregational development may prove to be of little or no value. In our time-starved lives, we don't want to run the risk of losing time and spending energy on initiatives that don't work. Now, I understand all that. My only reminder is that if we follow the admonition of today's parable, that we really don't have a choice. We are called to be risk-takers. The status quo is clearly not an option. Well, it's not my purpose this morning to be a scold or an irritant. It doesn't quite fit the atmosphere of a lazy, sunny Sunday morning to be reminded of difficult issues or activities or anything like that. Although, in terms of being a stewardship Sunday, I would ask you to name the last time you heard a church finance representative lay on a challenge that the congregation should be spending more money than collecting more money. Pat yourselves on the back. Despite the challenges I outlined, I am still thrilled, deeply thrilled, that our congregation is as generous as it is with people who are honestly and truly 
behind the purpose statement that we have laid out as a congregation. So if we are called to be a visionary and bold people in using our money and other resources, so what is the vision? I laid out a challenge. Okay, well, what do you want us to do? What are the high-level purposes that we are called to act upon? I think we are fortunate in that we have a clear congregational purpose statement that provides a lot of guidance for us. If you look at the purpose statement in the bulletin, you will note that three of the four clauses deal with relationships. There are guiding principles for relating to children and neighbors, introducing them to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In addition, we are to equip each other to live peaceably and generously. Finally, our mission is to contribute to the well-being of Lancaster City and the wider world. The purpose statement has a lot to do with linkages, linkages with each other and to those outside the congregation. We are called to use the resources available to us to build bridges, to build connections. And I am convinced that those bridges and those connections have eternal value and that our work in building them is part of the higher vision that we aspire to. The very word religion in English has the same root as the word ligament, to bind together, to realign, to, to re-push together, to bring together God and humanity and humanity with each other. It means to tie or to bind. I'll share this following story as a personal testimony. It really isn't anything more than a story. It doesn't have any deep theological implications to it. It may not speak to you the same way it's spoken to me over the years, but it brings together much of what I believe in regarding risk-taking, financial generosity, good stewardship, and living one's life as a kingdom citizen. My great-grandfather's name was Frank Denlinger of Gap. Frank had five children, of whom my grandmother, my father's mother, was the oldest. Perhaps partly as a reflection of Frank's strong personality, his children and their spouses remained very close through their adult lives to their deaths. I was a generation removed from that closeness. However, I came along early enough to participate, at least through my teenage years, in the annual ritual of the Denlinger Christmas Party. This event always took place in some nondescript, not very interesting fire hall on the eastern side of Lancaster County. I never looked forward to the event very much. Since I was very young in relationship with my, my cousins, I was sort of the baby of the extended family. I also felt the awkwardness of being younger. I didn't really know people's names or what families they were connected to. However, as I think back to those far gone days, I recall that my great aunts and uncles went to unusual lengths at that time to connect with me, to ask how I was liking school, what hobbies I took on, and in general, just touching base with me, recognizing who I was. I felt that I was valued by them. The conversations at these gatherings were exactly what you would expect from a Swiss-German ethnic Mennonite gathering for people, perhaps one generation off the farm, 
the price of farm commodities, which of course were too low, politics, I'll let that pass, <laughs> cars, gardens, all the standard topics. One by one, that generation died off. I regret that I did not get to know them better. My favorite great uncle, my uncle Sandy, died on Christmas Day of 1983. Of my great uncles and aunts, he always seemed to be the one with the heartiest laugh and the most interesting life experiences to talk about. He made it a point to call me by my name. He visited with me. He asked what new experience I had taken on during the past year, and he genuinely took an interest in who I was and what I was doing. When Sandy died, I normally probably would not have attended his funeral. The ritual of the Denlinger Christmas party had passed on. If there was an annual gathering, none of my generation attended anymore as of the mid-1980s. In December of 1983, when Sandy died, I had just finished my first semester of college and I was home on Christmas break. And for some reason, I felt compelled to go to the funeral. For reasons that will become clear, the occasion of Sandy's death was a solemn community event, bringing thousands of individuals who wanted to pay their respects for the good he did in the community and in the church. My great uncle Sandy was Sanford High. Sanford and his brother Ben purchased a small welding shop on North Prince Street in Lancaster in the early 1930s, during the heart of the Depression. Through a mix of fortunate timing, good luck, and persistence, the business grew rapidly after the Second World War. Sanford lobbied the state to approve the use of bridge substructures that involved welding instead of riveting. High welding eventually began to win contracts for full bridge construction projects during the expanse of the interstate highway systems during the 50s and the 60s. In 1971, the business changed its name to High Steel Structures. During the ensuing years, the High family of corporations has diversified into a collection of related companies, providing services to clients in commercial construction, real estate, safety, cons safety consulting, and architectural services. Uncle Sandy's funeral took place at Mellinger's Mennonite Church at 2 p.m. on December 29, 1983, almost 30 years ago. As expected, the lines of well-wishers extended as far as the eye could see. Officiating pastors were Paul Zare, who many of you know, and Leon Oberholzer. Pastor Oberholzer was a large man with a booming, authoritative voice that filled the sanctuary. It was one of those occasions that it was burned into my memory as an 18-year-old college student, such that I remembered the color of Leon's, I still remember the color of Leon's suit and the design of his tie. <laughs> I remember his opening words, and they have stayed with me for almost 30 years. He said, I remember Sanford High as a builder of bridges. And he continued with his story, saying that his thoughts turned to Sanford recently as he was driving over the Susquehanna River on the John Harris Memorial Bridge. The Harris Memorial Bridge carries Interstate 83 across the river between Dauphin and Cumberland counties. According to PennDOT, the Harris Bridge carries 125,000 vehicles daily over its span. High Steel was the contractor for the bridge expansion project during the time that Sanford died. What really struck me, however, and what was etched 
What etched the remarks firmly in my mind were the further observation that Leon made about bridge building. He considered the construction of the Harris Bridge and the massive steel girders that form the deck and the substructure. He considered the investment that Sanford made and the massive financial risks that he took working at a trade that he knew how to do well. Leon spoke of Sanford's life of simplicity and his dedication to church and family. Sandy and Irma lived all their lives in a simple single-story ranch house along the old Philadelphia Pike near the high steel complex. Stories of Sandy's dramatic simplicity and concern for people over nearly every other priority continue to inspire me. I hope that at some point a member of the High family has, takes or has the time to, to write down some of those stories. Coupled with those stories are ones of dramatic generosity to the missions of the churches that the High families have attended and to the Lancaster County community in general. The projects, buildings, and community benefits that have been given out by the High family and the High Foundation are too numerous to list. And clearly, in my view, Sanford set an example for building strong bridges in many different ways. Leon concluded his remarks about bridge building with another, with another illustration. At one point in the recent past, he said, Sanford stopped by his office unannounced at the church, obviously very proud of something that he was carrying. He said that Sanford made a few marks of thankfulness for Leon's work as a pastor. As a small token of thanks, Sandy presented him with a small bag of lima beans, already shelled, fresh from his garden, no charge. <laughs> For some reason, I find the humanity of that story incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Two hardworking men in a church office talking about ordinary things. A garden, the weather, traffic. One could make a strong case that Sanford had more important business to attend to than attending a garden and visiting his pastor to drop off a bag of lima beans. But here was a bridge under construction. Both men were grateful for the contributions that the other had provided in their mutual efforts to be kingdom citizens. I like the image of a bridge. I always have. A bridge acknowledges that there is distance and separation. A bridge is an intentional structure. It takes effort to build, and it takes effort to maintain. It says to the person on the other side, you are important, and I want to connect with you. Building a bridge says that I will make sure that you have safe passage between my side and your side. When I think about our mission as a church and our efforts to build a foundation for kingdom work, I often think about bridges. I think of financial risks taken and the potential successes and failures that come with reaching out and doing risky things. I think of generosity and goodness and honesty and wholesome, hard, sweaty work. Like many of you, I've grown weary of the unsettled nature of church life without a full-time pastor. And like you, I feel skeptical of new ideas sometimes because they just seem like more work that needs to be done.
But as the Dylan song goes, the times, they are changing. Help is on the way. There are lots of bridges to build, and we are a doing people. Let's collectively take a deep breath, think about all we have to be thankful for, and help each other do the work that our master intends for us to do.